Welcome to the Axis Effect podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Axis Effect podcast. Super excited to be here with CEO and co-founder, Chuck Rinker at Personas. Hey, Chuck, nice to have you on the show. I'm super excited to be here and appreciate you having me. <laughs> I was going to call you Charles, and I'm like, no, Chuck. And then I just froze up, and then I, so yeah. Either way, we'll work. You know what? We have a no-filter policy on our show, so it is okay. Even better. <laughs> I mean, this is so awesome, and I so, you know, my best part about these podcasts is that Marge and I start talking to you guys prior than I have to stop everybody to get us on the show. But like, I absolutely love, and I did not know this prior, that you have a gaming background, like from EA, and you've been with Personas for 24 years and four months now. That is a long time. I mean, you got to backtrack. Like, how do you get from EA and a Personas? You went from gaming to communications, like, like you're probably the one of the very few CEOs we've had on our show that has been with the same company probably what Marjorie for more than ten years. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a long trajectory of leadership. Tell us what you did at E, and then how did you end up going from that to an entire career of twenty years plus with Personas? Yeah, and you have to talk about Black Ops too. I want to yeah. know about that. Did I miss a memo on Black Ops? Oh, you missed all Black kinds Ops. of stuff, Miss. <laughs> okay, can we can we just roll this back and start with exciting stuff like Black Ops, and then we're you know what? Let's, yeah, you can you can roll back. Otherwise, I can give you the uh, the ninety second version of Chuck's life and and how we end up because they actually are all intertwined. The Black Ops stuff and the gaming and human AI actually have a very common tie. I grew up as a, um, a cattle farmer in Virginia, of all things, and lived outside of D.C. And my, my father had ideals that I was uh, had a little bit of aptitude for the technology and the math worlds and said, you know, don't be a cattle farmer your whole life. Go out and uh, uh, let me get you some uh, contacts down in D.C. So I started in the military simulations and military training as a beltway bandit, as we called it back those days, where I was teaching People how to use technology for the military. That's where my black ops stuff came in. And then I got into gaming in this form of a little controversial war gaming, but into gaming technologies, which got me deciding to get out of the military world and into something a little more fun that everybody loves, which is electronic gaming entertainment. So I ended up at EA, development director on NCAA franchise, moved into the Madden franchise for a short period. And then right from there, jumped into Personas for... As you mentioned, I thought it was 22 years, but I can show my age there, 24 years. <laughs> but the reality, Sarah, is that everything I've done since day one of my long career, as we say, based on the gray hairs that you see on my head, is really more about human engagement. How do you how do, how do humans engage technology and how do you engage humans with all the high tech scalability that we've had? And, and everybody talks about AI, you know, AI and chat GPT. Yeah, they're new buzzwords, but... The, you know, to be blunt, augmented reality and all has been around since uh, the 80s. You know, um, some of the stuff I did in military was early augmented reality where you were using laser disc and drawn graphics instead of all these 3D fast renderings. So the whole idea of engaging technology in human is really the only thing I've ever done and what I've had a passion for. 
So then you asked a follow-up, which is, how do you stay with one company for 24 years? Easy. You love what you do. It's so funny. Sam, you founded it too. So, right? You were one of the founders. Yeah. So what was that vision? What was that aha moment? I'm going to create this company. Because you're very early in artificial intelligence. So there must have been yes. something that sparked this company. There was. There was a um, um, desire to, not to, to sound like too much of a philanthropist, but um, I did a lot in the gaming and started in military. That obviously has some positives and negatives from a doing good for society type world. Thought it'd be fun to get into gaming. Luckily, I moved up the ranks pretty fast and went from a, ooh, I want to do games to a director role in less than four or five years just because I'd done it so long. I um, did a lot of work with NASA as well that got me into that mindset. And then I thought, you know what? I can engage kids and I've been able to uh, get millions of kids to sign up and play my games. And those games, quite honestly, are the same AI characters you see floating around the world now. And everybody's bragging about uh, all these new digital humans and all. I decided at that aha moment that, well, we can have fun and play games, but there's a bigger thing you can do. There's more you can do with a digital personality, more that more that can benefit from teaching computers and technology how to communicate at a human level. We have millions of years of evolution which allow you and I to carry on a very fluent conversation, the three of us. And that conversation goes well beyond the spoken word. It goes into the gestures, the eye movements, the hand movements, the subtle head movements that uh, Sarah's doing right now. How I agree. We, what our demeanor is, how we act. Are you straight-laced? Are you funny? Are you comical? Are you sarcastic? And that's a personality. That's what makes Sarah Miller Sarah Miller. So how do you encompass that and bring that into something that is more than just playing games till two o'clock in the morning. And that's really the the aha moment that said, hey, if I can do this for the gaming business and I can make an impact in gaming, why can't I make an impact in the commercial world? And then it's evolved even farther into that. And we'll get to that later. We actually have a product we're announcing this year called iHealth Assist is how do we use that, those digital personalities to engage underserved communities for clinical trial work? How do we use those characters to become approachable, empathetic characters that can earn the trust of their population and how that cannot be applied to people's life to make their, you know, think of it as if I can get your kids addicted to video games, why can't we get humans addicted to their own health and wellness? You know, so it's that kind of movement that we're moving into the iHealth Assist world powered by personas. You kind of so moved into the immersive experience. I mean, it's the whole experiential, mm -hmm. right? And this is the whole thing I love that you said a little while ago, is, you know, AR and VR was there a long time ago, way back when we had a client systems tech was a defense contract client uh -huh. and they were using AI in the simulated equipment for pilots, you know, in the back of the gun barrier of, a you know, they're doing the, um, the hands with the guns, they're training them. So before they got into combat, they had much more experience where it was safer. And then they did though, when you jump out of the parachute, you know, these troopers. So they were using AR, VR on the simulations, on the machines to train military safer. So as, as realistic as you could get before they went out there. And I love that that was so far ago. I never put AR, VR together with that client. It was way before AR, VR became AR, VR. But I love that all these buzzwords, AI, VR, everybody's an expert in AR, then VR, then AI and crypto. It's just like you're an ex expert at nothing. And I love that, like esports, gaming. Esports is just gaming. Well, if we yep. go back in full circle, <laughs> the very basis of what technology is used for, all we're doing 
it's enhancing it with the new buzzword to bring yeah. it back to more supply it to what's more sustainable now. And I, I love that you're, I think, one of the only ones who actually like ripped off the Band-Aid, say this is not a new thing. It's always no, been no. there. We just got smarter people using it for good now on how we've evolved. So we've evolved in how we use it, but the technology was always there. Yep. You could be a spokesperson for us just as well as I could, because that's that, that's what we try to get across yeah. to people. And outside, even outside the technology, here's you'll find that I'm a I'm a devout follower of the wisdom of Walt Disney himself. And I attribute Walt Disney. I wrote a couple of fun articles that I posted up on my LinkedIn profile about that. Actually, Walt Disney was the original virtual reality person, if you think about it. Because virtual reality is really just the idea of making you believe you're in a different space. You're in a different yeah. environment. You're in a virtual environment. It's, it's just, the, it's the, just the experience, the immersive experience. And when you're at Disney, when you're at Magic Kingdom or you're on the Jungle Cruise going through Adventureland, you believe you're in the middle of the Congo going through the Jungle Cruise. And that's what we're bringing to our personality. And you'll see, I'll call it a differentiator. And I don't, I don't really think I have any competitors. And that's probably a bad thing to say to a quote-unquote investment community. But to the market and the ecosystem at whole, the buzzword you hear now is digital humans. We use digital personalities because we don't believe in re replicating humans or replacing humans. We believe in human communication. So our, our mantra is all that human communication, not replication. So when you look at what we put together versus some of our competitors, co-editors, I'll call them, everybody's spending so much time trying to make things look so human and so real. We intentionally... People think, oh, well, you're lower tech. Are your characters look more cartoony? No, they're not. The characters are intentionally backed by clinical studies, backed by trials, showing that what our characters create is the ability to earn trust, empathy, non-judgmental, very approachable. So our characters are intentionally created in a little bit more of an animated light than digital humans because we want those characters to be believable, but not, I'll use the word creepy. There's a technical term for it called uncanny valley that we can define if you really want to get into it. But it's the belief in the psychology behind the human brain's perception of what is really human. And it's so exacting down to the hair follicles in the face that if I don't perfectly recreate the actions and motions, not just the physical representation of a human, you know it's not human and it creeps you out. It's kind of like watching a horror movie when your head spins 250 degrees or 360 degrees. But, but, but isn't, this just, isn't this just kind of like, like we broke down, technology's been there and all this bullshit of these three-letter words. Like anybody who has more than a three-letter word behind their name, I call bullshit. My only three letters, <laughs> CEO, and if they've been CEO, the only three letters I will attach to, yep. all the other stuff. But, but it's, it's, you're talking about avatar. And I, I don't want to get into the whole... Uh -huh. I've, I've, I've killed the NFT conversation sure, sure. in the past two weeks. But the whole thing is talking about, you know, that unthreatening, unaggressive, what's relatable. We're just talking about avatars, but I circling the drain on NFTs. So I, I just I kind of correct me on this. Is this what is this, this all the same thing based on how you apply it? Or are you talking about a distinct difference between all the NFT stuff out there, which is cartoony and creepy. I'm going to use creepy. Uh -huh. And then you look at the true avatars that people are using right now to what you're saying, what you guys are doing with this health thing that you have coming up this. I mean, am I talking the same, the same timeline or are we mm -hmm. talking such a distinct difference between the NFTs, the avatars, and then what you're talking about? 
No, you're, you're basically talking the same. I'll, I'll use the term market sector. We're still tar- targeting the same thing. We're trying to scale that human experience. We're trying to bring the scalability of all these great, wonderful technologies, but we're trying to make them usable. The differentiation when we say why we don't call ourselves an avatar or even a digital human is we look beyond that and at the specific personalities. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quiz you. Do you know that the, the term personas, our name, is really a mangling of the actual English word personas, right? P-E-R-S-O-N-A-S. Yeah. The, do you know the derivation of the word personas? No. Okay. It's probably Latin, right? Actually, <laughs> it, it might be originally, Marjorie, but the, the common use of it came back in the days when, uh, back in the Shakespearean times, when Shakespeare would have his live plays on stage in the middle of the town squares, he would take certain actors. And those actors would serve multiple roles. So it might be this character might be part of the ensemble at one point, And this character is now the storekeeper during this part of the play. And now they're playing one of the lead roles. But because they didn't have enough actors, those actors were called personas, meaning you had to take on your own person. You had to be the same physical person had to act as different people. So we built this platform that we call the personas platform so that that personality, whether it's a male, a female, Hispanic and a non-binary, whatever the character, the ambassador, the brand, if you took your brand, whether it was a healthcare brand or a commercial brand, and you wanted to encompass that into what is the personality of your brand? How would they look? How would they act? What's the knowledge base they have in their head? How do they respond to certain requests? What information can they disseminate? All that is what their personality is. So Personas really is this what we call digital experience platform, if you want another three-letter acronym, Sarah, about what can you do and what would it take to create a digital personality for your brand? And we've rolled that into an API, a platform. So now instead of taking... 16 months or three years to sit there and build your own AI characters. You come to us, we use these tools that we've spent way, way too much money than more than I admit to share online here, building this uh, technology stack that allows you to deploy your own ambassador in basically 60 days or less. What markets are you guys in? Sorry, I just like, like, so, so if you're talking about, you know, the personas, which actually cracks mm-hmm. me up because I think it's a good Hollywood acting term. What is your persona and everything? So now it's making sense, but like, like what markets are you guys targeting with personas then? I mean, besides this healthcare, are you just, you know, can anybody come to you to use it on any platform or is it only for specific projects and industries based on what, what they need for it? That's an excellent, excellent question. And one of the most challenging that we've had to relay to the world. And um, the reason I say there's really two audiences. When you say a specific market, um, we do have what we call our turnkey solutions. At the end of the day, if you say, hey, we do a lot of work with airports, um, you'll see us coming out of Philadelphia airport here before long. We're doing work with some airports in the UK. We've done work with Los Angeles airport. But basically the point is, is their purpose in that particular implementation is wayfinding. How do you get around? How do you find something? The healthcare would be clinical trial work. How do you, we did a most recent trial called the OBO trial with opioid addicted young females that have opioid addiction and what the impact of their born uh, children are. And so we've been able to take these characters and create characters that are more related, either black or Hispanic, 
for non-binaries and relate them to the character, the people that are participating into the study. But so to your point, what market, we don't pick a market. We're kind of like, here's probably the closest analogy I can give you. When the web first came out, everybody goes, oh, everybody wants to have graphics and image and audio and video and all on the web. But before that could happen, most people know the term HTML. We create this user experience layer that I can program and embed images and video and all using this HTML, this render language, so that when you're pulling up this web page or this web page, you get that user experience. Everybody knows the term user experience, but I shouldn't say that, but uh, probably a good majority of the people know what a UX is and the UI is. So if you think about us, we're just that next evolution of what a UX and UI is. We're really that, okay, now we're going to go beyond, and, and now I'm really going to show my age. You were talking about showing ages earlier. When I first started my first programming job, I was literally using ticker tape which is these little strips of paper with you literally had punch holes in them and they had little wire brushes. And as the tape rolled back the brush, it would hit a contact and that was your zero or one. Then I got into punch cards. Then we got into, you know, magnetic tapes that were the size of, you know, tabletops and they could hold five gig. Then we had the washing machines that were 20 megabytes, blah, blah, blah. Move fast forward to how we engage through keyboards, then mice. And now everybody knows voice first. Everybody knows Siri, Alexa, Cortana. That that kind of goes without saying. But the same way someone can take an Alexa piece and say, hey, Alexa, do this. Hey, Alexa, do that. You teach it skills. Alexa is that voice layer so that you can enable your applications to be voice enabled. We enable personality level engagement just like Alexa would. So we'll apply to different markets. Now, not to belabor the point too much or question too much, but where we're finding early traction is where it's doing the most good. Clinical trials, healthcare, wayfinding. We're in a lot of wayfinding. It's the hospital wayfinding, airport wayfinding, retail space wayfinding. Basically, I'm in an unfamiliar place. How do you find around? We're finding a lot of traction, early traction in trade shows. How do you teach a booth ambassador all the details about your product? We've been doing that for probably almost 11 years. This is not as new as people think. Our first client was a company called Genentech. They came to us and said, hey, we're sending our $300,000, half million dollar surgeons around the world at all these trade shows because they're the only ones that can do product launch information and be accurate with it. And that's a lot of medical knowledge to to relay. You can't just relay on uh, booth ambassadors to be trained in four hours before the show to be intelligent, have intelligent conversations about their pharmaceutical products. So we spent months and months at the time. It probably took us six months, maybe a year to build that first one. And so those have had early uh, uh, cases in there. So short answer, I guess it's too late for a short answer. Um, but the summary answer is that where that UX layer not product-specific use cases. Healthcare is one that we believe in strongly, one that we think can do good in the world, especially when you know that our characters can speak 148 languages. We have patents on sign language. We have two members of the deaf community on staff, and we're really trying to address a significant problem in the U.S., which is having underserved communities participate and get through clinical trial work, they're, they're, they're grossly misrepresented right now. So that's that's one good place we found some good advocacy and believe that there's a, a, a good reason to, to push that vertical. And that's why we separated that one out as I help assist. Now, there seems to be a lot of backlash recently about 
artificial intelligence? Is it good? Is it bad? You know, people getting yeah. bad advice from artificial intelligence. How are these two women company promoting artificial intelligence and ethical? What do you think the community of artificial intelligence creators need better? Awesome question. And, and, and one that you're absolutely right, it's been a hot topic. Short answer is people need to stop watching too many movies. Because <laughs> I, I robot really is the robots aren't coming to get us. And no, the goal in life for AI experts is not to replace humans. The longer winded answer when you relate to the things like AI ethics, and you hear a lot about chat BT and what we call generative AI, AI that will go out and generate responses. We take a very different approach. We take an approach of what we call, well, actually Microsoft uses the term active learning instead of machine learning. Uh, we call it active participation. We're not there trying to replace. What we do, as a matter of fact, we typically work with the customer experience team or the patient experience team. And we're not saying we're trying to replace. We're basically saying if you had a digital employee that had a photographic memory and could answer thousands and thousands of questions how you wanted it in the vetted format you wanted it, we use this active learning approach, which is basically let's train this character to respond how you want it to respond and how it's appropriate for your situation. And then once people start conversing with it, we have what's called a continuous improvement loop. So as these characters are conversing with their audience, whether it's a retail consumer or a patient or a traveling public person, uh, you know, like a passenger in an airport or train station, we take that feedback and we we gauge whether we're accurately understanding and responding to their request. And then if there's any gray areas or any questions you might have asked one of the personalities that she didn't have an answer for, she doesn't try to make it up. That's what generative AI tries to do. And that's where some of the downfalls, and I think it's a wonderful technology, don't get me wrong, but open AI and the chat GPT is wonderful, but it, but it trains based on a data set and it responds and generates its own interpretation based on the data set you feed it. We don't do that. We work directly with the client and it's up to the client to determine the vetted information. So it's their ethical responsibility. Our characters are specifically trained only to respond in exactly the fashion that the experienced team from the client has had us develop for that. So it's a little more hands-on, quite honestly, than some of these generative AI technologies, but it's the only way we've found to guarantee that these avatars properly and appropriately react to humans and converse with humans and represent our clients faithfully and appropriately. So I love Marjorie's question because we've had a few, a few people on for chat. Mm -hmm. PPT, AI and stuff. And it's one of the questions that I, we always talk about with these guys is, you know, it, it's almost like, like you said, you have to keep feeding it information. Then you can say, hey, I want a report. I want a press release. I want my knowledge. But all it's doing is regurgitating what you're feeding it. So if my viewpoint on whatever topic is skewed to my beliefs, right, wrong, or indifferent is what I believe in, but it may not be accurate. I can't say, well, look what AI, it's artificial intelligence. They agree. Look what they said. No, they're just giving me what I want them to give me. So it's kind of like, why am I giving you bullshit? Oh, but look at your report. It's just the bullshit I just gave you. And it doesn't support my 
thesis on what's going on. And it's going to probably be accurate and misleading because it's not a true form of artificial intelligence. It's like a cheat sheet with the secretary. I'm going to tell you what I want. Type it up for me. Well, this is exactly what you wanted. So is artificial intelligence really intelligence or is it really artificial bullshit intelligence? Because it's just giving you back what you're giving it to where what you're saying, if I'm accurate and correct me if I'm wrong here, Chuck, you're emulating actual personality, head movements, voice, everything that's as close to the personality as possible. So it's a little bit more realistic. So it's not really AI. I mean, it's not artificial intelligence. It's another stupid two, three word thing that I can't think of because it's not artificial. It's more authentic. Yeah. Does that make sense? That sounded good. It makes perfect sense. And and I'm not saying you're right. And I'm not saying you're wrong here. Here's where the differentiator is. When you think of artificial intelligence, the way you just described it with the chat GP and the what, what we loosely call generative AI, you feed it a black box data set. And at the end of the day, AI is still a series of algorithms. And then it'll parse through all this tens and thousands and tens of millions of records. And it'll inflate those into some regurgitation that it spits back out. Okay. That is AI. That portion of the AI, you're absolutely right. We take a more vetted approach. However, what we do with our AI, AI is kind of like saying I'm in the computer business. We do use real AI, things like natural language parsing, what we call language understanding. We'll say, so how do you interpret what your intent? So when you say a phrase, what are you actually asking for? A common example would be something as um, probably a politically incorrect example. But if you walk into certain areas in the U.S. and you say, um, where's the restroom? and you walk onto a military base, you're going to hear where's the latrine. And if you walk into certain places in the U.S., you might just have someone go, hey, I got to go. Um, where do I go? Those are three different, very different grammatical ways of asking. Uh, but in the U.K., they call it the loo. The loo. See, there's a fourth one. I just learned something today, too. <laughs> um, so the point is, is the, what, what are you intending? What's the information you tend to get back? So we will create a confidence factor on those levels based on what the piece is. So when we get a, a phrase that comes in and it's up to the client, if we're talking medical, you want that confidence level to be 99.5%. And I only wanted to give information if we absolutely know exactly what you're asking for. However, if you're trying to find a good cheesesteak where you're going through Philadelphia airport, if I send you to the wrong restaurant or send you to the second best cheesesteak place instead of the first, is it really life or death? Probably not. So we might change the confidence level. So the point is, is the AI that we talk about using is not the final output, but we use it for how do you generate, how do you scale someone signing or how do you have a character naturally moving her head and blinking and acting through this 3D animation and all that absolutely is AI and is real time. It's not like we're just sequencing video clips together. However, when it comes to the knowledge base, what is the information that's in her virtual gray matter out in the cloud? What are we filling her brain with? And the information that she's going to disseminate to the audience, we believe that has a higher level of responsibility to be accurate to our clients and to the appropriate responses. So that piece of the AI puzzle, the generative side, we don't rely on generative AI. We rely on what we'll call client vetted AI. We'll create that information. We'll create those responses. 
but then the client has to give us, well, wait, you know what? I want her to say this instead of that. I want her to gesture this way instead of that way. And then we have a tool set that we built that we can tweak that output. So our lack of generative AI is only on the output side, not on the input and processing side. Is that a little too geeky or did that explain the difference? Amazingly geeky. And I just want to touch back to something you were talking about earlier, and that's Walt Disney. Walt Disney has been one of the greatest minds, I feel like, in the past hundred years. What do you feel like are some of the things that you share with Walt Disney or some of the motivation you've gotten from Walt Disney as a creator, as an incredible person with a great imagination? What do you feel are some of the strengths you share? That's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> At this point, I go to Disney. I think I've spent more money on Disney World than Walt Disney did. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm down there six or seven times a year. But I have worked with the Imaginary team. I've been lucky enough. We did um, an animated bear to help kids who had to have CT and MRI imaging done at Florida Hospital through a company called Bearfax Entertainment. So we actually worked with the Imagineers and created an animated bear that we, we pat ourselves on the back for, helped reduce sedation rates in pediatric imaging by 4%, and then helped wow. eliminate a significant number of pre-op and post-op requirements for the hospital on the kids. So basically save the hospital money, save the kids the pain of getting through sedation, and the quite honestly, the mortality, the, the very minor but real mortality rate of sedation in pediatrics. And we were able to do it while, while making the kids comfortable and get them home with their parents as quick as they could. So it's that, um, to get back to your question on how does that equate to Walt and why is that important? Because that's the kind of thing Walt would do. If you remember Walt's original premise outside of his massive number of wards, which most people don't realize, uh, most of his wards or a significant portion of his wards were actually for technology innovation, not the creative innovation. You know, he created Panaflex the multi-layer Panaflex cameras, he Technicolor, he was involved in a lot of early technologies. And one thing I would like to, I can't say I compare myself because nobody compares to Walt Disney, but the one thing I have pursued in my career, in my life, is I have backgrounds in electrical engineering from University of Miami, computer science from Virginia Tech, but then I moved into multimedia tech at George Washington University. And I've got a 3D animation degree from a place called the Living Arts College. So, and everybody in my company is kind of that way. For example, my CTO is a computer science guy, but he also has a 3D animation degree. That's where I met my chief technology officer in an animation class, for God's sake. My CIO, my chief information officer, has a degree in user experience design. You know, so, so the point is, is what I see in Walt is that incredible ability to have a creative vision, but have a very, very specific way of making it happen. That's why I call him the original VR. You know, outside of not having the goggles that sit on your face, Walt was able to go down and engineer an entire world around how he wants people to be immersed and believe what in the game business we call it the suspension of disbelief. So I've spent my entire career making people believe they were talking to a sentient being or they were in an environment they weren't. And that's what exactly what Walt did. Simple things like when Walt Disney created Disney World, a lot of people may or may not know Walt Disney World is actually, um, they built a series of corridors. The, the Magic Kingdom is actually like the second floor of this huge building. And he did that. So when a character needs to go from Tomorrowland in and out of the park, you don't see the guy from uh, Tomorrowland walking around in a spacesuit and going through Adventure World. You don't see someone hauling a trash can from Peter Pan ride out to the front of the front gates, the trash cans all go underground and all because he wanted that suspension of disbelief. 
So uh, a lot of that is what I I would say model. I won't say compare myself. I model my actions to how Disney thought about those types of piece. There was a really interesting article. There's like Marty Sklar was one of Walt's leading Imagineers, unfortunately passed away probably two or three years ago, wrote some really cool books on the legacy of working with Walt as an Imagineer. But he wrote a short piece of um, literature that sat, probably still does, sits on all the walls of the Imagineers at Disney called the Ten Commandments of Walt Disney. The other Ten Commandments being how do you, uh, theme park design, basically. How do you design a theme park? And there's 10 rules you have to live by. And I took those on my LinkedIn page and I rewrote that paper that Marty Sklar wrote and I wrote it to 10 rules of VR because what Walt Disney did to create Disney World are the same principles we live by if you want to create an immersive world as well. So that, that's probably the, the as close as I can equate myself to, to Walt is the followings of what he taught me not saying we have a lot in common. Well, I think to your and Marjorie's point, it is all about innovation and leadership. And if you look at Walt's history, you know, from the very beginning, how he did use innovation and leadership and technology and the creativity to give you that immersive world, which is what we now call Disney World or Disneyland, I, I do feel there is a certain distinct pattern of how you innovate and lead through whatever perspective industry that we do pull for some of these greats in the past, like Walt and stuff. So I, I do love that you're not just bullshitting through, well, here's my innovation and my idea. You really are pattering, pattering, that was even a word, your um, innovation leadership to where you are now from the people who have really created the foundation of where we are and how we've evolved in the past 20, 30 years, which I think is amazing. And like, like, I hate that we're running out of time because like, I have like five more questions for you Uh and I'm sure Marjorie does as well after that response. Um, So I think we are going to need a podcast 2.0 with you, but like Chuck, what real quickly, if you could, before we kind of wrap here, give me a little bit, like where's personas going? Like where is your next two, three years and how are you going to evolve where you are now? And where do you see this company evolving? Wonderful. As we, I appreciate that because as, as in, uh, I'll try to make a less about a commercial pitch and more about a, a vision. The vision is for us to create a new standard. Let's call it the evolution beyond voice only, voice first interfacing. So our goal is to create a evolution where people are learning how to communicate with technology and we're making the technology invisible by putting technology behind a human conversation like we're having now, a human personality, something you can trust, something that has empathy. And where that goes from a commercial standpoint, quite honestly, is we want to create that layer and we want people to start seeing all these wonderful enterprise solutions that all these great companies build, say, okay, now I've built all this cool tech, but how do people use it? How do my customers use it? How do my employees use it? How does the traveling public use it? How do the patients use it? And we're trying just to create a frictionless interface so that all this stuff that's blossoming is more reliant on making the technology easier to use, friendly to use, frictionless is a term I always use. So it becomes a non-event for us as the humans and less about, okay, our humans have got to get smarter and smarter and we got to learn more and more about tech. No, technology in my mind just like when you walk around Disney World, it should be invisible. You shouldn't know that an audio animatronic has actuators and gears inside of it. It just looks like a person. And that's what we're trying to pull off. 
Forget about the gears inside the robotics and the animatronics. We just want you to think you're, someone's there to help you. You have your personal patient advocate, you have a consumer advocate, you have a confidant in this avatar and everything behind it's invisible to you. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's amazing. Where, where can every, like, this is the most, like, a, such a fascinating conversation. And I hate that we have to end it right now. Where can people reach you directly? And where, what's the um, URL for Personas? Yeah. For the URL for Personas is a P-R-S-O-N-A-S.com. P-R-S. I know it's a weird spelling, but there's a reason for it. P-R-S-O-N-A-S. I do, if you don't mind me sticking it a little bit, is I like the eye health assist because I do believe strongly in the benefits that we could do good in the clinical trial world and health and wellness. So if you go to I, the letter I, eyehealthassist.com, that one is specific for people in the life sciences that, that want to see how we can improve patient care and patient uh, clinical trial work there. Otherwise, if you want to call me directly, I'm, I'm one of these LinkedIn guys. I, I get so many spams and emails. If you email, it's going to go to the trash. If you actually have a, a good ideal reason to call me a question, then I'm LinkedIn is probably the best place to get me. I was glad you weren't going to give everybody your phone number. The best. No. Get me. <laughs> <laughs> you, we all know how that's going to end up. Oh my God. Chuck, it was so awesome having you on. Like, like I do, we do need to cover more in the eye health industry as well on our show. we have, It's a subject that we've had one really good guest on that I want to talk to you about as we general for an introduction, but we really don't have enough in that industry that we do need to bring more on to the show. So um, this could be our next conversation because our conversation Wonderful. is way too short with you, but I, I loved having you on with us. Marjorie, thank you so much. I know you're kind of road podcasting right now, but road um, warrior, road warrior, but like, it was so good, Chuck. We are going to catch up more. Until then, this is Sarah Miller, Marjorie DeHay with Chuck Riekler on Access Effect Podcast. And we'll see everybody in a week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Access Effect Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Access Effect Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit theaccesseffect.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.